I want to uh, talk tonight about irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. That is what the letter I in the TULIP acronym stands for. And understand all of these things that we've been talking about deal directly with salvation. So total depravity talks about what happens before salvation. The, the, the condition of man before he is saved. He is totally depraved. The U, unconditional election, talks about God's plan, how He, in eternity past, chose those who were going to be saved and therefore chose those who were not. So that kind of talks about the plan of salvation. Limited atonement, which we talked about last week, talks about the securing of salvation, that Christ died for the elect. He shed His blood only for those who are going to be saved. He didn't shed it for the whole world because not all the world is saved. He shed it for only those who are going to be saved. And what we're going to be talking about, perseverance of the saint, talks about the effect of salvation, the effect that salvation should have on you. It's kind of amazing when you talk about a doctrine like this. Um, it sounds so astute. It sounds so scholarly. But it's about an inch deep and a mile wide. It only deals with salvation. Calvinism's main... Um, foundational doctrine, what is so much time is spent on teaching and defending, deals only with salvation. So yeah, there's a little bit of service thrown in there, but it doesn't deal with baptism. It doesn't deal with uh, dealing with sin and things like that that we face on a daily uh, basis. It really only talks about salvation. And irresistible grace talks about how that is affected to us, how somebody is saved at the point of salvation. A really good definition can be found on Wikipedia, so anybody can look it up. It says this, Irresistible grace is a doctrine which teaches that the saving grace of God is effectually applied to those whom He has determined to save, and in God's timing overcomes their resistance to obeying the call of the gospel, bringing them to faith in Christ. It's a doctrine about the grace of God which is effectually applied to those who He chose to save. And when that is applied, it overcomes any resistance and it brings them to faith in Christ. That's kind of the, the generic term, the generic definition. You'll find other names for, us, for this rather than irresistible grace. It could be called determinative grace or effectual grace. Uh, because to tell you the truth, most, most people don't like that term, irresistible grace. That, that term is from the 1590s or 1610s, I believe. <coughs> Calvin didn't coin it. Somebody else did, but... <coughs> <coughs> they don't like the irresistible part, and we'll get to, to why. This is place number four. In the tulip, T-U-L-I-P, right? Most people who teach on this, most of the head scholars or the head teachers want it to be number two. They want it right next to total depravity. It goes hand in hand. It is absolutely inseparable with total depravity, total inability. Those two go hand in hand. In fact, if you don't have total inability, you don't have irresistible grace. Understand? You can't have one without the other in the doctrine of Calvinism. 
Remember the total, the thought that goes along with total depravity is that the fall was so great, the fall was so terrible and so final as it renders us completely sinful so that we're always in rebellion with God. We're never doing anything He wants. We're never in agreement with Him. We're always going head to head in rebellion with God. And because that is the case, we are totally unable to obey Him, totally unable to do anything good, and totally unable to overcome our own rebellion. There is none good and there is none righteous. So you may think, well, what about those who love their kids? Isn't that a good thing? What about those who love their wives? That's a good thing, right? Whether you're saved or not saved or in the church or not in the church, that's a pretty good thing to do, right? Well, they say that's good that's done with a defiant attitude. Much like if you told your teenager to go mow the lawn and he didn't want to, but he still did it and he was out there uh, spitting and cussing and kicking around, he's still obeying, but he's not being obedient. So they say any good that man might do is in that kind of a realm. We can do nothing righteous because there is none good, no, not one, none who is righteous. So therefore, we can never believe on our own. I would be curious as to that answer, too. Because to me, that's a good act, a selfless act. I don't care about that update on the virus. I really don't care. That's an act of good, whether you are in a relationship with God or not. That's still a noble thing, right? So I, w- I would be curious how that would be explained. I, I don't know. I really don't know. Of course, they're going to cite Ephesians 2. You can turn there if you want. It should be familiar to us. Ephesians 2, the first couple of verses. Verse 1 says, In you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We are dead in sins, dead in our trespasses. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Living according to the world, the course of the world, according to Satan's working, the prince of the power of the air. That's what that is in reference to. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, this disobedient, rebellious, dead spirit that we have. Verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we are enslaved to our own lusts, enslaved to our own desires, not only of our flesh, but of our mind. That is who we serve. And because we are in total captivity to that, we cannot do anything good. We are totally unable, unable to do anything good. John Piper says this, If we are dead in our sins and unable to submit to God because of our rebellious nature, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. That rebellion is so pervasive, that sin is so captivating, we cannot believe unless God breaks it, overcomes it. If thus that happens, we will not be saved. Salvation cannot be left up to the unregenerate sinner. It cannot be left up to his own will, because our own will is enslaved to sin and fleshly desire. 
Matt Chandler says, preachers who call um, sinners to repentance because of their own emotion, because of their own will, are like witch doctors. Pretty big statement. Because he's calling them to do the impossible. He's telling the unregenerate sinner to do what he cannot do, and he is most likely misleading them. Remember I said they hate the sinner's prayer? They hate it with a passion because they believe it is misleading. Leading. A person cannot believe on his own. His will is enslaved to sin and fleshly desire. So then you ask, does man have a free will? Yes, enslaved to sin. So any choice that he makes is going to be sinful. Any uh, move he makes is going to be one towards sin. You have to understand that idea of total inability. That is bedrock. Man cannot do anything good. Man cannot save himself, period. John Piper says this, If my believing were to depend entirely on me, or decisively on me, I would not believe and neither would you. You see what he's saying there? If you're the deciding factor, when it comes down to it, if you're the one who says yes or no, you would never be saved. And if you thought you were saved, you weren't. You were fooled. You were lied to. You misled yourself. Because you can't, according to them. You cannot believe you're not good. Faith is a good work. Repentance is a good work. You can't do those. We will never choose Christ on our own, no matter the amount of pushing or prodding or emotional moving. If left up to man and his choice, no one would ever be saved. That is because God has declared that He provides redemption. Excuse me. Let me rephrase. Let me restate that. If it was left up to man and his choice, nobody would ever be saved. Right? That's what total inability says. But that can't be true because God has declared He's going to redeem people. So if man can never be saved and God has declared that He's going to save people, something's got to happen. And that is where this idea of irresistible grace comes in. God's effectual call of grace. You know what that word effectual means? Um, it means it does what it's supposed to. It works. It, it, it's going to happen. It's an effectual call. It's not like, hey, I want you to be saved. Think about it. It's, I'm calling you. You're going to be saved. Whether you want to or not, it's an effectual call of grace. Which always accomplishes what he wants it to. Okay. When you hear the word irresistible, what do you think of? <laughs> you have no choice, right? You you got no say in the matter. Um, there is no resisting. It is not resistible, right? It's probably what we all think of. Well, this, this is the reason why they don't like it, that title. They say, well, that can be misunderstood. That doesn't mean grace can't be resisted. R.C. Sproul, Presbyterian uh, Calvinist, one of the big leaders, he has since passed on. 
um, states this. Irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted. The history of the human race is a history of relentless resistance to the sweetness of the grace of God. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist it. The idea with irresistible grace is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. So what he's saying, yeah, we resist all the time. But at that call, God's grace can overcome our resistance. In effect, you can say no, and it doesn't matter. God's grace is going to overcome that. John Piper says this, Irresistible grace is often laughed out of court by pointing to obvious texts in the Bible that say we do resist the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, yeah, you could look in the Bible and see that we do. They're all over the place. He's still quoting him. They're all over the place. For example, Acts 7.51. That's where Stephen is uh, uh, talking to the Israelites. He says, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. This just means that whenever God pleases, He overcomes your resistance. He can let you resist Him as long as He wants to. But when He decides, He triumphs. He did that for me. If you're a Christian, He did it for you. He gets all the praise for overcoming our rebellion. We didn't overcome our deadness and our rebellion and our blindness. He triumphed in our lives. You kind of get the flavor of where they're coming from. One, one example that they like to use is they'll ask people, well, what happened when you, when you were saved? Why were you saved? And most of us would answer, well, it's by the grace of God, right? And they'll say, aha, exactly. It wasn't you. You didn't save yourself. It was God's grace in that moment that overcame you and saved you. And of course, anybody who thinks about it for any length of time will ask a question. Well, if it's irresistible, is it against our will? Is this against our will? Does God simply pick and choose and force salvation on people? Are there those who are dragged into heaven kicking and screaming while those who want to go are prevented? Well, their answer is, well, no, of course not. And here is where we must be careful. I don't know if you've read after many, um, any of these guys, any of them, um, but they're really smart. They're very eloquent. They speak on a very high level, um, very enticing to the mind. And uh, we need to be careful of that. That, I think, is what is drawing away a lot of younger people because they get up there in the pulpits that they do, they speak with authority. They speak very eloquently. A lot of these guys are very well read. They have uh, theology degrees. They have doctorates in theologies, masters in theologies, whatever it is. Um, they've spent many, many years at seminary. Their, their, their bookshelves are lined. And they speak with very uh, with this powerful kind of elegance, I guess, if it would. And it's, it's, it's appealing to the ears and it's appealing to the mind. You feel smart when you believe Calvinism. Like you've almost got 
an edge up on somebody. And, and you understand what the scriptures say. So this is, this is very appealing. A lot of people are going after it and, and leaving what is the simplicity of the scriptures and going towards this because of very powerful words. So we got to be careful. And there's going to be a couple statements I'm going to read you that really sound awesome. And it's statements like these that, that kind of get in our heads and draw people away. In answer to the question, is this against our will? Remember, they'll say we do have free will, but it's only to sin. It's not to do good. Our will is in bondage to the sin nature. So it can never do anything towards God until it is liberated. You see, your free will has to be freed. It can't do anything of its own but sin. So it has to be freed from that. So you can then be freed to choose God. John Piper says this. Well, that's not it. R.C. Sproul says this. It is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. No. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ and we embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. You see what he's saying? There's a change that takes place first, then we accept and run and believe. John Piper says this, I think this is the way it works. The Holy Spirit can make Christ look so compelling that our resistance is broken and we freely come to Him and receive Him and believe in Him. You were dead and blind, rebellious, a lover of the world, and whether it was six years old or 26 or 46, <coughs> it really doesn't matter, we were dead. But at that moment, your resistance was conquered. You were resisting God all your life until the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and granted you an irresistible sight, which is why you feel so free when you make that choice. God gives you sight. God frees you from sin. He rips off the change. He opens your eyes and out of freedom, for the first time in your life, you do the right thing. You embrace Him and He's beautiful. To me, those are awesome statements. Very, very well worded Things I would come very close to saying in a sermon, but meaning something different. I would say, yes, the Holy Spirit illumines you. Yes, your, your eyes are open to some things. But they are saying it very, very different than I would, or you would. No, we're not, we're not dragged kicking and screaming against our wills. No, we want to because the Holy Spirit has freed us and we make that choice out of free will. Well, there's something that happens back here that we're going to talk about in just a couple minutes that I think throws it all out. Okay? Again, beautiful words. But yet, even in, in their commentary like that, there's another side of it that's there. Turn to John 6.44. Because every one of them, in their explanation of this verse, will, will be very careful to define one word. 
See which word you think it is. John 6 and verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What word do you think they're going to zoom in on? Draw. Draw. Well, maybe, let me ask you first and see, see maybe what your thought on it is. How would you define that word there? <laughs> would we define it as conviction, right? Um, huh? A leading, that's, that's the word that's in that. A leading, right? A, a, a drawing. I, I, it's hard to put in other words because it's pretty simple. A pulling, a, a uh, even a compelling. Wooing, yes. That's a good, yes, a wooing. Like a courting. <laughs> they will say that's exactly what we teach. That God shows up and He's trying to court us. Here's how they define it. And, and listen, a word is a word, right? John uses this word for a reason. The Greek word is helkuyo. It doesn't matter. What you need to know is what it means. It means to draw or to drag off. It's used in other places of Scripture. Paul and Silas were drawn to prison. It's not um, translated drawn as compelled or dragged. They'll go right there and say, nobody can come to me unless the Father drags them. So what does that do? Does that throw everything we believe about the Bible out? No. I've seen people compelled. I've seen people drawn. I've seen some people dragged by conviction. Dragged. And I've seen them reject it. I've seen people look like they were going to have a heart attack. Faces so red, flushed, mad, gripping the pews, gripping their seat, wouldn't say a word to me after, and they weren't saved. But I knew in that service, God was drawing them, dragging them against their will to see some things. Wasn't that what conviction was? Conviction was kind of against our will, wasn't it? when we were shown some sin about ourselves, It's not like we were, yes, this is so great. I can't wait to see more. No, I don't. Stop talking, preacher. I don't want to hear more. Why do you keep saying this? And it kept coming, didn't it? That was the Father drawing. And I've seen people being drawn, and I've seen them reject. That said, they're going to go right here and say, listen, nobody comes. God drags them. And at the same time say, well, no, we're free to make that choice after the Spirit liberates us. So you got kind of two sides going on. Um, they argue no free, no enslaved free will. You're in bondage free will until you're liberated. Then you have free will to have faith. Very few people that I 
full board and I, I was saved. I can't tell you how long I was under conviction, but it wasn't one period. It was months, probably. So at what point, like, if God's doing all of it and we don't have the ability to do anything, why doesn't it just happen the first time? You see, I mean, some people fight it for years. So, but that would mean that we are have an ability to do something about it versus if it was all God and we didn't have a choice. Why don't people the first time they're compelled or drunk go and do it? I, I don't know. I, I, I literally I can't make that work in my mind. But I don't know if they address it or. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know how they would address that. Yes, yes. Um, that's a long period of drawing. Why God? Why wouldn't God yeah, just do it? God's in control and he can do all of it. So why would I have the first time someone hears the word he's convicted and they're that chosen one that happens? Why can we fight it for some time, even months or years? I don't know. I don't know. That's, a, that's a good question. Let me let me see if I can find some stuff on that because that, that, that would that'd be something I'd be curious to know too. How do, how do you explain that? Why wouldn't God just do it? If he's going to do it anyways, just do it the first time. Accept or reject, right? Have you heard of Isaiah 54 and 13? No. Well, when you look at the, the next verse, uh, verse 45, it says, It is written in the prophets, God will teach all of them. <coughs> Think about that. God teaches his churches through the Spirit, and the pastors and ministers. And like when I was saved, it was the conviction of God that drew me to him. Without that conviction and the word of God being presented, it never would have happened. But Isaiah 54, 13 says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Um, I think that's that's what that verse is referring to, verse 45, right? It is written by the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Unquote. I don't know what they do well actually you know what I think I'm going to touch on that here what do you do to people who hear the call and don't receive right the call goes out let's say some of those children are taught as Israel was taught and they had Christ there and they rejected what do you do with that were they did they have any part to do with it or or this call goes out how do you um, deal with that? They will say, yes, the gospel call goes out to the world, but it is affected only in the elect. So people preach. People hear the gospel. Only the elect's lives are changed. The other people, they might hear it, they reject it, but it's only the elect in which irresistible grace works. They alone are the recipients of irresistible grace. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brother Bob, go ahead. Paul, it just—it sounds like the, uh, they're saying that, that those who are convicted and yet don't ultimately choose to follow God, their conviction, their feelings of conviction will just be believed. Yes, that is exactly what they'll say. A false conviction, a false call. <laughs> but I could, I don't know. It, it, it seems dirty, but it seems like a very 
Let me let me just kind of connect some dots. Yes, you're 100% right. I, I don't see how people believe this. If you don't see the church and scripture, this is where you come. One form or another, you're going to be coming to this. It was this born out of the Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all these big names that you hear. The Reformation bore this, and so came out the universal church theory. To where it's all about salvation. Salvation is all that there is. That was born in the Reformation as well. And so you have this whole new doctrine coming up. You have this whole focus on the individual and whether or not they are the elect and the salvation that pertains to them. Little to nothing of the church and everybody everywhere is okay. Just make sure you're part of the elect and you're good. That's where you go. If you don't see the church in scripture and who the elect is when it's talking about, you're going to go this way. And so that's why I say just about every place out there is Calvinist to one extent or another because the two go hand in hand. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 23, verse 23. Got to kind of breeze through this because I'd like to be done. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Paul is saying we preach. We preach the gospel. Verse 2. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. We preach it to everybody. People hear it. They don't respond to the call, but then there's the called. You see how they'll take those verses? There's a group of those who hear the preaching, and then there's a group of the called that irresistible grace moves upon. So there's a general call, like everybody needs to be saved, but then there's the effectual call of God who who God actually saves. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 65 Kind of skipping a couple here. John 6, 65 says this, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. You cannot come unless it was given to you of my Father. All of this is working down towards the root of the doctrine which I want to handle and move on. The root of this doctrine of irresistible grace is the problem with the doctrine. And it is this. Regeneration preceding faith you must be regenerated or born again to be saved you must be regenerated to have faith to be saved this is what this is saying since natural man is dead in his trespasses and sin it stands to reason that he must be regenerated before he can respond to the outward call of the gospel you can't respond because you're totally unable remember so something needs to happen in you before you can have faith to be saved. Until that happens, you're going to resist the gospel message. You're going to resist the grace of God. But however, once a man has been born again, he now has a heart inclined toward God, and the grace of God will irresistibly draw him to put his faith in Christ and be saved. These two acts of regeneration and faith cannot be separated from another. In fact, they're so closely connected we cannot distinguish between them. But they will say, before you are saved, you are born again. Everybody understand what I'm saying? See where they're going with this? The heart of irresistible grace is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit whereby He takes a man dead in his sins 
and gives him spiritual life so that he can recognize the surpassing value of God's offer of salvation, then having been set free from the bondage of sin, the man willingly comes to Christ. Acts chapter 13. Let's go there. Two verses here I want to look. Acts chapter 13. I don't know if we're going to have time to circle back. Oh, maybe. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Some of yours might say appointed. They were appointed to eternal life, so they believed. Acts 16, Acts 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto things that which were spoken of by Paul. See, the Lord had to open her heart first before she listened to the things spoken of by Paul. On and on they go through the Scripture. Sproul says this, the Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. Again, very good words, but listen. The Holy Spirit resurrects us so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. And the reason we want to come to Christ is because God has done a work of grace in our hearts. Without that work, we would never have any desire to come to Christ. That's why we say regeneration precedes faith. So you begin to see where all this is working down towards. That work of irresistible grace is God bringing someone to life so that they can have faith. Without God bringing somebody to life, we are totally unable to be saved even if we wanted to be. No, it is a work of irresistible grace that God does so then we can be saved. John Piper, what God does then is take the blind, dead soul that has zero spiritual light or interest and He opens the eyes. And what you see is Christ. You see Him and His cross as compelling and powerful and wise and beautiful and wonderful. You cannot not receive Him because your eyes have been opened now. The scriptural basis they'll use, we've already been through these, Ephesians 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead. According to his mercy, he saved us. By grace you are saved through faith, and that, the grace, salvation, and the faith, is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You are his workmanship. See how those slant things? John chapter 3, you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God until you are born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God until you're born again. You must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth. So it is with each one that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit moves upon that person. They don't know it. But all of a sudden now they see Christ is beautiful. They have been born again and so they want the kingdom and they are saved. John 3.16. Oh, I forgot the phrasing. It just went out of my head. Not of the verse, what they say about it. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It makes no qualifier as to the ability. It just says whoever believes. It is God who changes the person so that he can believe. They'll say things like that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God has opened our eyes so that we might uh, see the light of the gospel of Christ because Satan has us blinded. It's God who opens our eyes. What do we say to all of that? 
Well, first we say this. Certainly nobody comes to Christ of their own accord. Nobody comes to God by themselves. We don't do that naturally. Salvation is initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's not of us. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody comes to Christ unless the Father draws him by the Spirit. Unless that 2 Corinthians 4 moment happens where the light begins to shine in our hearts before it was blinded and we see our sin. Until that happens, nobody's geting saved. You could pray a, th- you could pray a thousand prayers. It ain't going to happen. Until that knowledge of sin takes place, it's not going to be saved. The Word illumines us to our sin. And in that moment, I want to show you the right biblical response. And I think what repentance is boiled down to. Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 13. If I could boil salvation down into its most simple statement, I think it's going to be this. Maybe I'm off, but the parable, the tax collector and the Pharisee, verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not so much as lift his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think that's repentance at its basic. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Save me. It's a recognition. It's a realization that, yes, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. They they inflate simple trust. They inflate simple faith into this mighty righteous work. It's just recognizing we're sinners. How are we saved? We recognize we're a sinner and we accept a gift. That's it. It's not like I'm doing anything. I'm accepting something. I'm now letting God do something in me. I'm not doing anything. I'm simply saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I think that's what we all did at first faith. Ephesians chapter 1. Two more Scriptures. No, that's kind of a lie. Three. I would like to get this done, so let's just look at these couple verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 says this, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You did what? You trusted. After you heard the word, you trusted. And after you heard the word of truth, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's trust. It's belief after we hear the word. Go ahead. The first one is not in verse 12. Second one in verse 13 is... But I think it's I think it is carrying down the the idea. No, that that's that's exactly why I went to the one above because it carries down the idea. <coughs> Acts thirteen. Let's go there. As you're turning there, do you know that famous phrase? David says in Psalm fifty-one, "The sacrifices of the Lord are what." A contrite heart? 
in a broken spirit. Right? Does it say the sacrifices the, the Lord takes pleasure in are all these great and wonderful deeds? It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's that attitude of the publican. Not this great, might, righteous, mighty deed. It's recognition that I'm a sinner. That's what happens at faith. Acts 13, 48. Remember that? As many as were appointed unto eternal life. Just back up a couple verses and get the idea. How about verse 46? He's speaking to Jewish people. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you. What? What did they do? They rejected it. And judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. They did what for themselves? They rejected. We turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There was something special going on there. Okay? But you notice what happened in the Jewish hearts? You rejected, you put it from you, you judged yourselves unworthy. I thought we couldn't do that. I thought that decision was God. He could overcome any resistance. But they put up a barrier of resistance and so rejected it. Not to mention all of the times Jesus said, Ye would not, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. In fact, he says about Jerusalem, How many times I wanted to gather you, but you would not do it. Well, if he wanted to gather them, wouldn't he do it, whether they had a say in it or not? Evidently, Jesus is powerless, or he's respecting some free will he has given us. All of this, to me, makes the glory and justice of God rather shallow. Yes, He could receive glory for the Calvinist view. I'm going to save you. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to do this work in them and them and them. He would receive glory. But does He not receive more glory from the willing choice of those who trust Him? And is He not more justified in His judgment when there's willing rejection? And we are indeed saved by grace, but grace that comes through faith. Salvation is by faith. Here's another, here's another phrase. Two last points will be done. Okay. Justification is by faith, right? In Scripture. Does justification produce faith? It is contingent upon faith, right? We are justified by faith in Christ. Romans 5.1 They'll tell you that until it comes to Ephesians 2.8. No, you are saved by grace through faith. It's not grace that produces the faith. It's grace that comes through the faith. It's not the irresistible work of God that makes you have faith. It's God working in you as you place your faith in Him. Finish up, last thing, Romans 10. To me, this is the clearest passage right in the heart of their territory. It says this, <clears throat> Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. It's faith in Him, right? It's what Paul is saying. He's the end of the law. It's faith in Christ. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Listen. <laughs> Say not in thy heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Like God reaching down and working. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? Verse 8. The word is nigh thee, near to thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of what? Faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth in the righteousness, with the mouth confession is made in salvation. For the scripture saith, whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is over the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not this hard thing. You don't have to go searching for it or wait for it to fall down from heaven to you or dig down in the deeps of the earth. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. It's the word of faith. Believe. Believe. That's it. That's what Paul's saying. That's what it's always been about. Because the verses he's quoting is from Deuteronomy. That's what it's always been about. It's about faith. Faith that we place in Him. And that faith is not a high and mighty righteous work. It's a yielding to Him. Recognizing that we are sinners and letting His grace work in us. 